What do I say? Yeah. Do you want to do it? No, I'll do no, it. No, I'm good. You do it. <laughs> okay. But we, this is all good. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is all usable minutes. Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. It is a scientific podcast exploring the bullshit of the wellness industry. It's a conversation between a statistician and a doctor with me, Justin Bullwinkle. <laughs> and me, <laughs> Justin Boris. <laughs> good. Ooh, I thought oh, you yeah. lucky. Very good. No, Switch. well, that's, the ob- that's too obvious, right? <laughs> Come on. I'm glad we have someone who can join us in our anagram game. We take proper names and rearrange the letters to form a description of that person. Like, uh, Alec Rocky Bullwinkle one two, no. Well, okay. So there's there's a reason why I chose Bullwinkle. Yeah, why which, did which you? It's, what's, what's it's a little bit sneaky. A little sneaky. Uh huh. Well, I just got back, uh, as you know, from Broken Hill over the last uh, week. I've been in Broken Hill. Yeah, I can't believe it's been a week since I saw you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Took a train. The out. whole adventure. I feel. I, I, it's. I feel it was two nights ago that yep. we said our goodbyes, and I uh, waved you off. We uh, yeah yeah, kissed each side. Uh huh. And I was away. Like in Europe? Yeah. Three it, was, times. it was a European farewell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it was sweet. It was a week ago. It was a week ago. And that's and it was thirteen hours on the train out from Sydney. Uh-huh. Um, was it good? It was great. I had I had quite an incredible time, actually. I love a train ride. Uh, but the reason why I chose Bullwinkle as my surname yeah. for our little intro yeah. was that uh, she was one of the big um, well, he. Oh, is it she? she? Well no, it's uh, Vivian Bullwinkle. Oh right. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's a long story. But I, went, I went over there to scope the idea of doing like a, a bit of an um, history of yeah um, history oh. of Broken Hill kind of podcasty thing, mm-hmm. and uh, did a bit of research. And there's this incredible stories out of that place. Really incredible stories out of Broken Hill. Um, Broken Hill's got like a wounded knee vibe, right? Uh, what does that mean? Wounded knee is a like um, it's a place in the states where a battle. Was fun. Ah. So I think there's a book called "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee," which is such a good name. That's for a great book, name for a book, right? Oh my um, god! So Broken Hill is sort of of that ilk, the Wounded Knee, Broken Hill. It is, and for those that don't know, maybe if you're you know a listener from overseas, uh, Broken Hill is our listener our from listener overseas, from overseas. <laughs> William. <laughs> yeah, William. Um, it's very much inland in New South Wales, so you have to travel, as I said, 13 hours west of Sydney, and you get to Broken Hill, and it's it's in the in the heart of the history of Australia, really, because it was the where the mining boom kind of took off in the late uh, eight, 1800s. I didn't know that, dude. I didn't know so much about it. Going there was incredible, and this chick, Vivian Bullwinkle, was a uh, was a, a doctor. Well, actually, yeah, she was a doctor that. Um, Sorry, a nurse. She was a nurse that was oh, yeah, went to because men are doctors and in women 1950s, are nurses. Unfortunately, that was how it went. Yeah, uh, for 1930s and 40s. So she got um, placed in Singapore to help out with the war effort, and mm-hmm. uh, just when the Japanese were taking over, mm-hmm. right? So this is when essentially, j- j- so Japan came in, yeah, and they were they were on some ship. She was on some ship that got sunk by the Japanese frigates or whatever, right? Sure. 
And then she managed to get to an island with a bunch of other nurses and stuff. And then the Japanese got there and executed all the nurses. Nurse they Island. They basically lined them up. <laughs> they lined them up and executed everyone. Um, she got shot and realized she wasn't dead. So she like... Played peed, dead. She played dead in the water until the Japanese disappeared. She ended Smart. up like trying to, you know, r- run away from them for the next little while with some, some other guy that survived. He ended uh-huh. up dying, but, but she survived. And she was on some concentration camp for the next three, three and a half years at the hands of the Japanese. Where? Um, not quite sure where. Not quite but sure. like South Pacific or like uh, Asia? Well, yeah, presumably somewhere yeah, okay. around there. She was at the hands of the Japanese for three years, came back to Broken Hill, became hands. this like incredible um, nurse there. And yeah, it's just like a, just one story out of many that come out of that place. That Australia's Florence Nightingale. Sure, exactly. Where was she from though, originally? Is Broken she- Hill. She, so she's from Broken Hill. Yeah, that's right. So she, she was went, an Australian Broken nurse Hill, was over there. Yeah, right. Went to war. Went had this incredible. She was the sole survivor from this um, that uh, the thing of Barker Island, B A R K A Island. Um, sole Island. survivor with a U. No, <laughs> no, no. But that's some that that's an album, right? That must be. <laughs> sure. Is it? Yeah, I'm just got to be like a Diana Ross album 100%. or yeah. like. Anyway, long story short. Broken Hill is fucking incredible. Okay. And, um, I Beautiful, meeting, like, uh, nice, like nice? Um, inter- yeah, not not particularly nice. I mean, it's a dust bowl. That's just mm-hmm. kind of how it is. Um, some greenery, but it rains Have you been to rarely. Cooper Pedy? No, no, I've no, not. I want to go there. Cooper Pedy. Well, how do you say it? No, you said that's fine. It's fine. It's good. Um, so I'm tired of getting picked on for how I say Australian the, places. The, the, the best bit about small towns is that like... In doing a bit of research, yeah. I just emailed the mayor of the of, the, of Broken Hill and ended up hanging out with her. So she's probably real lonely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. She was lovely. She was really great, and we had a chat about you know the history of the place. Anyway, all right. So so that's my that's my little Broken Hill little story for you. But yep. um, I'm definitely I'm thinking of, I'm probably going to go back at some point. It's just a fucking schlep out there. It's, it's massive. I mean, you can fly, but I kind of wanted to real feel. I wanted to feel. What was the, the train like? Was, was it like a sitter? Right. Was there a sleeping space? No, it was a sitter. It was, it was a real sitter. There. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, it goes basically. There's a New South Wales train link that goes all the way around New South Wales, and it's it's pretty. Is, it's uh, just, it's fast. Is, is it's lice a concern? Lice? Because <laughs> I've heard about lice being a problem on Australian country link trains. Well, I came back liceless. No scratching. I'm scratching myself right now, and I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, you got lice. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. a nocebo playing, <laughs> playing its tricks on Yeah, me. right? Yeah. Um, no, I think I'm I think I'm all right. I'm lice-free. Okay. Scabies, though. I got that. I well, got that there's, no, the there's no rumors about scabies on the trains. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is now. Well, today, aside from Broken Hill, we are going to chat about... Um, we're going to chat about MSG. MSG. But did you want to... Did you have something that was getting your goat prior to us having a chat about MSG? Yeah. Yeah, there is. So... There's an expression that sort of I heard a couple of days ago, which I've heard for years. And mm-hmm. I've sort of had like a low-lying sort of an eyebrow raise whenever it's been said. Yep. But I've played along and I haven't really gotten too upset about it until a couple of days ago. I don't know what it was or who said it. I forget the context now. It's unimportant. It just made me so irate that I went into like, you know, a furious searching sort of <laughs> okay. you know uh tire rate well i think it is right it's to me it's really important um and it, i think it kind of dovetails with what we talk about a bit so the expression is and i'm sure you've heard it um 
something something is the exception that proves the rule. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. I've often, I've had issues with that too. Yeah. Not, so not, not you so hear direct. it, you hear it your whole life, yeah. and you kind of go, uh, oh, look, I'm sure there's some story behind it, or maybe I don't get it, whatever. And then it all came to a head, I guess, because you know, especially doing this podcast, right? We're so evidence based, and it's, we're about facts, right? And then I guess just I'm primed when someone said it's the exception that proves the rule. I just flipped out and I was like, <laughs> no, exceptions break rules. <laughs> That's what they do. Exceptions do not prove rules. There is no way an exception can prove a rule. And people just kind of, it's like this knee jerk. They're like, ah, oh, it's an exception that proves the rule. Yeah. Whenever they see an exception, and but the problem is they get the expression wrong, but they use the the expression as a truism yeah. that actually that lets them confirm so what, what their bias, the, what was right? The scenario that, that I totally forget, but it doesn't <laughs> matter, right? Because what it does is it allows you to reinforce a bias in the face of of evidence against it, yeah. right? Okay, and I think that's that's the issue. You'd be like, ah, you know, um, I'm trying to think of an example that would make someone happy, but I don't know. You give someone proof of something that goes against what they believe, and they're like. Hmm, Exception that proves the rule. <laughs> you just made me more right. <laughs> it's like no, that you just we can't do that. I'm not gonna play this game. It's almost and, like a, the exact opposite of what it should be doing. Yeah, and so I asked a few other people about it when I was kind of in the uh, in the eye of the storm. Yeah. And firstly, not only does that expression that is the right wording of the expression, but it's used wrong. But the expression is also... I'd like to have an example. Have you got me a concrete... I'm, I'm going to type it into Google as you're speaking to see if I can find like a good example sure. of exception. Proving see what people say about it. Um, but it's one of those things you hear all the time. People use it for any exception, right? Like, I've heard people probably know, oh, someone's a really smart guy, um, but he's doing whatever. Well, it's the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> this is the first line from uh, Wikipedia. The exception proves the rule is a saying whose meaning has been interpreted or misinterpreted in various ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So, uh, we'll, and we'll get to what it really means in a minute because I did that search. Right. Okay. Um, uh, you don't have to dig too deep <laughs> to, get, to get answers on this. It wasn't a deep dive. Um, but, yeah, the other thing is that it gets misquoted too, right? So, I told one friend of mine when I was in the, I said, like, the eye of the storm of this whole flip out, and she's like, exception that proves the rule. She's like, I've never heard that one before. I've heard people say it's the exception to the rule. I'm that's like, just a sentence. And that's just a, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and that's not an expression. <laughs> that's just saying something. <laughs> and that's yeah, fine. I got a good one. As so, long as you're not going to come up with your own logic as a result of it, that's fine. A rural, a rural, a rural village is always quiet. Yeah. And then. If a local farmer, farmer rents his fields to a rock festival, which disturbs the quiet, in this example saying the exception proves the rule is literally incorrect. Yeah, that, that would be an example. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or be like going to but a... It's used, it's, here it's used to draw attention to the rarity of the exception. Yeah. So it would be also, I guess, like going to a louder country town and being like, exception that proves the rule. It's like... Nope. It being loud, it's not, a, it's not a conditional circumstance. No. This town being loud has no effect on the other towns being quiet. <laughs> um, so anyway, what it means is, apparently, if you, do your, if you dive into Wikipedia, if you read past that first sentence, which I didn't let you do. There's a, um, heading, there's a heading here that says jocular nonsense. It is jocular nonsense. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> which is which is the alternate name for this podcast. That's what I actually. yelled. <laughs> I yelled. Um, it was quite embarrassing. I yelled out, "This is jocular nonsense!" And I ran out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so and I won't stand for it. Yeah. Uh, and so what it means is, in the in the absence of having a rule stated, yeah. marking down or making clear the exception to that rule can sort of allow you to infer what the rule is. So um, I think the example they used was a, a parking sign on the street that says, uh, like, parking Sunday, all day Sunday, or something to that effect. Right. If they're only going to mark the time you can't park there, then you'd assume that all other times you can. Mm. So that exception doesn't so much prove the rule, but it tells you what the rule is. Okay, I'm with so you. it doesn't support a rule. It just creates the rule in a vacuum, right? The other meaning is apparently the old like derivation or, or, or the origin of the word uh, proof could mean test, which makes sense. Proving, the testing. The exception tests the rule. Yeah. So in that situation, it is more what we'd be used to as well. At least if you give someone an exception, for example, the, the noisy village. Well, here's another one which, which might fill this. So yeah. it says, it will, uh, it will rain on my birthday. It always does. It didn't rain last year, but the exception proves the rule. Exactly. It doesn't. Um, but that exception would test your rule. Well, that's right. So yeah. it's testing it yeah. as opposed so, to it. And that would make that makes sense. So both the possible roots of it do make sense, yeah. but no one... I've never heard it used properly. And the closest is when people would just say it's an exception to a rule. <laughs> in which case, by the way, you don't need to say that because it's not an expression. So people see an exception, they're like, oh, that reminds me of that expression I, I, I could say here. Yeah, say what you think. Yeah. yeah, but it's not an expression and you don't need to say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, de- I'm determined to say it at least twice in the rest of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> so be, be, be wary, be wary, it's coming. And I had something else that, was, that got me just today, right? Um, Sort of also on the linguistic etymology. We are a linguistics track. podcast. Yeah, well. we are. I mean, we're, we're scientific, but we we're are. also, we're, we like we're, our language. Well, we're about getting things right, aren't we? We are very Truth. much in that field. So, um, so, I was listening to a podcast today, and I won't say what podcast it was. And it's a great podcast. And I, I want to support it. And what I'll do is, I will support it later on when I'm not talking about it in this context, because I'm kind of throwing shade at them okay. right now. So there's a guy in the podcast. Well, no, we have a friend, gives a bit of background, who is known for mispronouncing words. Right. Very well-read individual, but not as well-spoken. Right. No. He he reads more than he talks to people, That's and good. so he often um, mispronounces words that he's read. Right. And fair yeah. enough. Some words. Shushushka. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite one. Uh, what are the other ones? Portia de Rossi. I mean, that was that's, that's yeah, a bit, a bit it's a soft one. But there was like uh, a soft one. I can't remember. There were some great ones. Yeah. Anyway, so there's a, one of the hosts of this podcast, I think is about the same, because in one episode, he had a good, like, three of these, where I was like, that is definitely not how you pronounce that word. Right. One of them was disparate. Oh. Instead of disparate. I ha- th- this rings a bell in my head. I think I've listened disparate, to the same podcast. Disparate. 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 And I was like, that's a word you've read and never said before. Yeah. And the other one he used, which the other host called him out on, was debauchery. Good. Oh, he might have even pronounced a bit weirder than that. But de- it was debauchery. like... Debauchery. De- 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 debauchery, I yeah, think, yeah. right? And the other host was like, I don't think that's how you pronounce that <laughs> word. And he's like... 
and this is the best part, right? Because maybe it is. Maybe he's like, no, I've heard it before. He's like, I've heard it pronounced several ways. That's just how I pronounce it. There's a lot of ways. I agree. It's probably mostly said debauchery, but um, this one's also good, and there are other ones. And I was like, no, I've only heard one for that word, but yeah. maybe I'm wrong. But pronunciation, but, he's my... Can I, can wait, I, wait, let me finish All that. right, all right. Because then he says, it's one of those potato-potato situations. <laughs> no, potato-potato situations, right? And I said, it is, but not for the reason you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> because what you should have said was, I'm talking to you like I'm talking to him. I'm not talking to him because it was on a podcast. I might have to send him a tweet or something. Yeah. He said, because um, it's a tomato-tomato situation because those two words are pronounced differently. Yeah. But there is no potato. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. he's, he has actually said what is what is just, some people get it right, some people get it wrong. <laughs> but he good. said it in the context of thinking that two people can be right. So, yes, correct, Brian. Um, it is a potato-potato situation in that you cannot pronounce debauchery. But here, <laughs> my, my issue with pronunciation is yeah. that it's, it's only, the correct pronunciation is what literally gets, just whatever gets a point across. Well, not. Well, no. that's okay. That's, that's one the core of my, my concern. But yeah. what we deem to be the correct correct pronunciation is just whatever the most common pronunciation is right i think so that's yeah. basically it like if you I hear someone so. pronounce it wrong you're like you have this little sly grin where you're like yeah you, you pronounce that wrong but yeah. it's just that you know you still understood the word and that's what saying a word is right yeah pronunciation means nothing like if, if i no. said debauchery and you were like yeah okay i know what you mean yeah i know i know, I know man i know what you mean yeah but at the same time, you could also blank out that right word, or wrong. and I like, probably still know what you meant. <laughs> it's just funny that there's a rightness and a wrongness to it. Just, yeah, like, to me, it just I know. Which is also really why weird. the whole thing feels so petty. I don't want yeah. to. I get stuff wrong all the time. <laughs> yeah. I get so much stuff wrong. You and, better not mispro- mispronounce anything I know, in this podcast. I'm going to be on your potato case. <laughs> <laughs> people who will, who have listened and will keep listening, will find so much wrong with what I say <laughs> and how I say it. But it was just funny because of the link to the potato potato versus how you pronounce something i thought that was you just be a, careful a, have a cute little i know I'm, I'll, be, I'm, I'll be chopping your potatoes into uh, french wide. freeze i filleted <laughs> myself open for you all right um all right we good to go yeah let's let's get into the 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 real heart of this particular podcast after a quick little break, break we're going to be back with uh detailing how or if msg is bad for you at all Chaz, when was the first time you have a memory of hearing about MSG in, in any context? Do you have a memory of when that well, sort of actually, crossed your yeah hundred percent crossed your nose? It actually crossed my nose in the negative, where you'd see all of these no MSG signs sure. outside of largely Chinese restaurants. Essentially, yeah, Ch- Chinese food was huge in Australia in like the probably the eighties as well. But I, you know, was a bit young for me then. Uh, well, I was a bit young for it. In the 90s, I definitely remember lots of Chinese restaurants popping up about the place and having, um, yeah, no MSG. That was a big now, thing. Um, so I think I'm in the same boat as you. Um, when I don't you recall. F- it was never a health concern for me. But I did you know. know why they oh, were no. putting MSG in? No or, idea. When did you 
first kind of get a glimmer of a reason why someone wouldn't want MSG? Oh, I, I never researched it as a kid. I never like bothered looking into but that. Never, no one ever never spoke about it. Up my Netscape navigator, navigator. <laughs> to uh, hell of a browser. Rest in peace. One of the greats. Um, no, but I never did. So I just always just presumed it was bad. Yeah. Um, I think my, my parents would have probably avoided it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see we, your mom. Chinese, I can see your mom being the type to avoid it. Yeah, she would have. I'm sure she still does. But it's it's it was a Chinese definitely Chinese food related. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that it's as we've as I've found out um, in many foods, not just Chinese food. Um, but that was the one memory I have. Definitely, kind of the no MSG signs everywhere. So I was like, oh, so that's good. I guess. I, yeah. So I remember seeing those signs in Chinatown back in Montreal. Yeah. And yeah. So. You're obviously prejudiced against it because of that. Mm. But then I remember, um, I don't know when it was. I, it was in our Montreal house. So we're going back 15 years or back to around the same bit later, late yep. teens, early adulthood. In our pantry, we had a bottle of MSG. And not assuming that we wouldn't have anything that was particularly bad in the house, right? I did. I think I checked it out what it actually was, and I got the gist that it was fine. It's a flavor enhancer. I didn't know. I didn't know what MSG was. I yeah. think until that point, I knew that people had used it to cook. What does it stand it, for? Monosodium glutamate. Right. Um. So. Yeah, I didn't. I don't. I didn't even know what it was. Mm. I just knew it was something that people put in Chinese food. For whatever reason, <laughs> they try to sneak it in, and a lot of people didn't like it. And I guess some people I heard had a reaction to it or something. Mm. But I never had a reaction to it, and we ate tons of Chinese food. Um, but and we never paid attention to the MSG signs either. So I knew they existed, but it was not something we would like look at before going to a right. going to a place, right? So what's um, the, I mean, I've, I've got a bit of a few notes here on the history of um, the. The, of the pandemic angst against okay. MSG. I'm well, not sure if you've done a, b- a bit of research on I have, that. But. I have. I have. Um, it goes back to 15 and, years. And I, yeah, and I know people. I know several people. I can think of one in particular who swears black and blue that she has a reaction to MSG. She can't have MSG. Right. And I've told her, this is probably a couple of years ago, my thoughts at the time about it, and we'll get into what those are, but they're pretty much just aligned with current medical opinion yeah. <laughs> there's no not a lot of evidence supporting that there may be no effect on people and she said oh that's interesting but i definitely get it though <laughs> yeah the exception that proves the rule uh so yeah so monosodium glutamate which is um i guess if we go sort of first principles glutamic acid um is one of the building blocks of the human body so we are riddled full of glutamic acid mm-hmm. um now if you take uh the glutamate that's in glutamic acid and you combine that with a single sodium uh atom so na plus plus the the, the glutamate you end up with a molecule called monosodium, monosodium one sodium with glutamate yeah <laughs> right that's the recipe for monosodium glutamate and um so yeah it's, notorious man- MSG. It's, it's man-made in that capacity the the sodium derivative of this the, the salt of monosodium glutamate is man-made mm-hmm. but glutamate itself is found in nature everywhere it is and like i said largely in our own bodies so it's found in fish and meat and also oh yeah tons like yeah, seaweed like mushrooms and, and stuff too yeah there's, tons. there's yeah there are two different types i think but um certainly the and once you once you ingest once you dissolve msg into water i think even just in water 
it dissociates the same way that salt will dissociate into sodium and chloride ions, yeah. when you put in ions in, in, in water. Um, monosodium I remember glutamate. my chemistry class. Yeah, I, I remember you, that. I know you Anions. You're a smart, you're a smart guy. Um, so Jury when you dissolve monosodium glutamate, um, it loses its sodium and it just becomes glutamate. So it becomes indistinguishable from your natural glutamate. But then you've got the sodium, right? Yeah, you got the sodium. Sure. Okay. You got the sodium. Yeah. So realistically, this which is... but which you need, by the way. So sodium isn't. So there's toxic no, there's no theoretical way. basis, I guess you're saying, for that's any kind right. of. Yeah, that's right. So kind of like I think our, was, it, was it last week our talk about, um, about the uh, the turmeric no, a few weeks ago, two yeah. weeks ago, where this I think so far to me looking at this from sort of a, from the very beginning. I think this is an example of one of those things where you think, okay, if you understand a little bit about what's going on, there is no reason why it should cause a problem. That's not to say it doesn't, hmm. but you're, when you break it down, there isn't a lot of there there, right? You, well, you look me, at it and you think, okay, well, we shouldn't be allergic to or have a reaction to something that we're made of. That's right. We're yeah, pretty the dumb. building blocks of our body. Yeah. yeah, but look, people do have autoimmune diseases, right? So... Hmm your body can turn on you and certain elements in your body. But unfortunately, if you're allergic to, uh, to glutamate, you'd be nauseous all day, <laughs> all mm. the time. It would be, it'd be an inconvenient thing to, well, to develop a reaction to. Well, let me give you the history of um, the issue with MSG. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to 1968 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Which is a, a very good journal. Oh, incredible. One of yep. the, I think maybe it's the number one or number two highest impact factor journal in the world. Yep. Right. And so there was a letter written by a Dr. Kwok, K-W-O-K, in 1968. Who uh, sounds like a Chinese man. I cannot confirm that. Uh, but he stated something called Chinese Restaurant Syndrome, mm-hmm. which was given CRS. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. That sounds um, so much more legit, doesn't it? Chinese, yeah, Chinese, Chinese Restaurant Syndrome, which he reported having transient subjective symptoms after some Chinese dishes. Uh, those, those symptoms being general weakness, palpitation and headache. Uh, and then, so it just started off this this litany of interest in it, and then research and people's potential biases as well against sure. a particular slice of racial slice of the community, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of research now written in terms of how this became this huge abdu- sociopolitically and yeah, it was, it's massive socio sociopolitically, which is yeah. quite incredible as well. Yeah. Well, because that, that's all that's there, it seems, right? What do you mean? Well, it's the only, all we have yeah. if, as, as a cause for this epidemic is just but subjective the, feelings about Well, that's right. Those so people so what happened was it was tested and tested and there was yeah. inconclusive results that came out um, from the next decades of research. Nonetheless, people were continually reporting having different kinds of experiences after a Chinese meal. It started getting excessive, like people were reporting depressive symptoms, um, rashes and and whatever you like. There was one that was called like uh, called like dumpling soup fever, <laughs> something. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I I just love the I love the nomenclature that yeah. they use. But even yeah, it's sounds so restaurant syndrome is like dumpling on, soup Jesus. fever. Chinese restaurant syndrome. So that was now that was fifty years ago, and despite yeah. the fact that there's been no conclusive evidence suggesting that it is in any way responsible for transient or otherwise yeah. symptoms. Um, consumers are still avoiding it and it's in terms of uh, I can't remember who did this but it was in the Washington Post 
and in March this year. But uh, 61% of people say they, um, what is this? Top ingredients that Americans try not to eat behind artificial additives, sodium and added sugars. Oh, sorry. So th these are, yeah. Top ingredients that Americans try not to eat. We've got added sugars at the top. So 61% are aware of added sugars and try not to eat those. Yeah, don't eat them. 53% um, sodium, 50% uh, preservatives, and it goes down to MSG at 42%. So 42% of people in 2018 are still trying to avoid are still trying to MSG. avoid MSG. That's in the States. I'm sure whatever, it might be the same. Same here. I'm not sure. Um, Gluten is only 20%. And then you've got caffeine and GMO. Wow. So it's, it's, it's still worse very than, much... worse than gluten. Yeah. Double so e. all those memes and jokes on TV, they should be swapping an MSG. Mm. It's much funnier and, and based in way less fact. Yeah. Like the whole gluten thing, I guess we'll talk about that at some point as well. We probably should get into gluten. Well, it, I think it, that's, that's getting the weeds the, the a little bit. The nocebo effect, which is essentially what's happening. Yeah. Happening so it's, it's a combination of, I think, of a bit of mass hysteria mm. and the nocebo effect. So yep. we've spoken a bit about placebo. We haven't really, we haven't really well, dived detail, deep detail on placebo. For us what the nocebo effect is, because I think the, okay. that's a that's a word that's been thrown bandied about all over the place. So give us. I the, don't think it's bandied about. That I've heard much it quite a lot recently, but. Well, you're you're in, you're in biostatistics. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, you're, right. you're, you're in a rarefied atmosphere, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid of, of clinical trials and yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. I I don't think. It's actually, despite hearing about, obviously, placebo for for years. Oh, wait. Should we start a band called Nocebo? We should definitely do that. Okay. <laughs> Make a note. Um, Rusty, <laughs> write it down. Um, yeah, so I heard about Nocebo quite late. So, look, we spoke about placebo, I think, a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. very briefly. Um, basically, placebo is when you take a, um, whatever it is, you have some... Um, some intervention in your life, whether mm -hmm. it's you eat something or it's a pill or a medicine or whatever it is, some intervention um, that is purported uh, to have some benefit to you um, and you feel that benefit. Now, what we know about placebos is that, yeah, they can make you feel better temporarily, um, but that's not related at all to the anatomy or the biology of what's actually wrong with you. Mm. So, if they, so it's usually like pain things, depression things um it's good for um like nausea these sort of vague for symptoms it can kind of treat symptoms a bit mm. but only because symptoms are ultimately mediated by the mind so the power of suggestion allows you to sort of overcome those mm -hmm. transiently but they don't get to the root of what's actually causing the pain or the nausea or the depression or whatever else it is and that's why they don't usually last very long and their effect is probably overhyped as a real effect Right. Um, anyway, so that's that's placebo in a nutshell, uh, and that's not a biased opinion. Placebos don't don't. There's no evidence showing an organic process. An organic process is like the tumor that's growing in you, or your diabetes, which is a discrete, observable, cellular, measurable problem, right? With insulin mm. and sugars, um, it will not change those, but it might change the problems you feel as a result of your diabetes, right? So if you have um, chronic pain or anything else that you have as a result of some other organic problem, you might feel a bit better with that, but just briefly. So nocebo is the opposite. Nocebo is if you give someone a medicine, we'll say medicine for the sake of argument, if you give someone something and you tell them that it could be real and what the side effects would be, 
they'll feel the side effects. Right. They might also get the placebo effect. That's not to say that you get one or the other. You get them both. Um, but you experience the side effects that the thing cannot give you. How does, it, how does that relate to psychosomatism? Is that in the same ballpark? It's, it would be in the same ballpark. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's where, you where your can, mind you can, is actually creating the symptoms. The symptoms being real, but your yeah. mind is creating... Well, yeah. So that's the other question. Are they real symptoms you've created? Or are they just the sense that you've experienced those symptoms? Is It, it could be completely... Because psychosomatism involves some sort of a link between um, the body, the soma, and the mm. mind, where the mind actually can create some degree of uh, physiological change. Well, that's right. So if you're dealing with rashes and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So if people say, I'm having MSG, and look, I've got a rash on my arm now. That, that That's not pain, right? That's not no. something subjective necessarily. No, but yeah. So, so but, that, that could be an instance but of mood, Yeah, but mood and emotion, right? Sure. Can cause yeah. vasodilation, which is when the, the blood vessels enlarge and you can get flushed and whatever else. Okay. And so, okay. Like, like, for example, you, snuck it in there. people get flushed when they get embarrassed, right? And usually yeah. people say they get flushed when they eat MSG. Right. So we know that like having a flushed face is like, you can bring it on in a second yeah. with someone, right? <laughs> like you drop your pants, <laughs> you'll get flushed. <laughs> like it's the kind of thing that's not organic process. It's not necessarily related to a chemical at all. No. Um, it's just related to you dilating the blood vessels in your face. That's all. Um, to get okay, more blood. All right, all right. So, so, that's a, and so we know that. So, so of rash, yeah, but... so nocebo, you feel the bad stuff. Mm. And really, the idea of a nocebo really in itself disproves the real effect of a placebo, right? Because a nocebo, um, you're giving some, you can give someone like actual sugar tablets, which they've eaten their whole life. Oh, the sugar, not the tablets. Mm. And they will feel really real symptoms, or to them they are. So it illustrates the power of the mind. And I so, mean, yeah, you, can, so, you can see the potential extension here beyond just MSG, but you know, the, the whole clean, clean eating phenomenon, right? Mm. Where you're telling people that avoid gluten, avoid like um, artificial sugars as opposed to just sugars, sugars or whatever, right? Like, yeah. And, and you can see how people are reacting to these because it's, it's almost like a, um, uh, like it just ramp, it ramps up because people will then comment on top of it. It's like an echo chamber, right? Totally. And, and then all of a sudden becomes, people are avoiding it more. Yeah. And so that's essentially what was happening with MSG um, for the first sort of 20, 30 years of this. Yeah. Um, and, and it's been used in in different shapes and forms well, what for saying, like thousands of years, well, right? It, particularly the, there was this Canadian, a bit of research in Canada where they were saying that um, people were avoiding Chinese restaurants and stuff in Canada. It was like a big, there was big economic effects on Chinese the Chinese community, not 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 ours. No, but, sure. But in, they did some analysis on the amount of MSG in Canada, and they found that there was probably only about ten to fifteen percent. Well, what does it say here? It says uh, eighty-five to fifty percent of Canada's MSG supply were coming from food processors. So the rest, the ten to fifteen percent, even if it was being exclusively used by Chinese restaurants, that's that's a small amount yeah. of the total MSG oh, it's consumption. in tons of stuff. But the whole idea of it being, being called Chinese restaurant syndrome yeah. kind of... People only notice it at Chinese restaurants. Funneled everyone's interest into it or funneled everyone's like yeah. concern into... You know, I like McDonald's for all we know and I didn't check. It could be full of MSG because mm. it's a flavor enhancer. We don't know. We actually don't know how it works but we do know that for some reason it does seem to... A little bit of it can enhance the flavor. It can kind of maximize the flavor of, of any food. Um without changing the flavor mm. itself. So it's, I think it's tasteless if you just eat it by itself, but it 
works there sort of synergistically with other foods. But yeah, so people could be going to KFC, which could be full of MSG with no symptoms whatsoever, but they walk into a Chinese restaurant and they're flush and they it's get a headache. It's interesting. The, the racial undertones are incredible. Yeah. Like I remember at the it same time. It was just xenophobia, right? Well, and remember how there was all those, um, you know, you'd always hear about these Chinese um, like restaurants, the, the practices of, you know, occasionally they'll serve dog or serve cat and that kind of thing, yeah. right? Well, I have seen that like, in Vietnam. Sure, okay. But, but these were like com- common up. kind of slurs that would be thrown at yeah 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 what are you eating Chinese what are you eating cat in that stir fry well, that's right yeah number 27 with, probably rat without the pause yeah, or, yeah right yeah um, and so you can see how that would complete this picture of a potential sort of racial vilification that, that formed part of people's actual physical physiological responses to yeah. MSG which is quite fascinating how it just one you know one paper well yeah one paper one anecdotal paper Right? Yeah. Um, and so, a bit like the whole turmeric thing, right? Which were the guy in one of those articles, they pointed out that like there have been like a billion dollars spent on turmeric research with diminishing returns, right? Like they keep on finding nothing, but they keep on hunting for that cure. Yeah. Well, um, the same thing is true with MSG, right? There is so much research into MSG and it all comes back the same. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> Well, let me give you. But people keep two, looking for it. I've got two articles here, more recent ones. Okay. Um, that are systematic reviews, which are mm-hmm. our favorite types of reviews. Love them. <laughs> um, reconsidering... how, many, how many patients? What, sorry? How many patients in the systematic review? Uh, uh, look, I'm, I don't know. I've got the abstract here for one of them. I don't... Okay. Oh, uh, you're, you're an abstract. Oh, no, this surfer. one's just a, liter- a literature review. Sorry. Okay. Um, anyway, so this is a systematic review. Does mo- monosodium glutamate really cause headache? A systematic review of human studies. Uh, it's just uh, one word here. It says no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that's what the whole paper could be. Yeah. <laughs> just no. Um, no. So, I mean, it, it says, okay. Um, because of the absence of probable, uh, the, due to inconsistency of findings, we conclude that further studies are required to evaluate whether or not a causal relationship exists between MSG ingestion and headache. And this is in 2016. So this is still getting studied. Um, I haven't got the... Where, where's the, the big sentence here that says... Um, of the five papers, in, including six studies with food, none showed a significant difference in the incidence of headache, uh, except for the female group in one study. Um, and of five papers, including seven studies with, without food. So this is just ingesting MSG without food, which is... Well, I guess that would be somewhat interesting to yeah. see from a... Um, you know, to separate... Well, it's tasteless, right? So you can do that. Yeah. Um, showed a significant difference. Many of the studies involved administration of MSG in solution at high concentrations, which Ooh. again is another concern we had from the turmeric episode because, you know, uh, sure, you can inject inject yourself with incredible amounts of MSG and find that, yeah, you, you break out in hives, but what's the, you can do that with almost anything, right? Yeah, who knows? Maybe just high dose, like, you know, highly concentrated sodium chloride would do the same thing. Yeah, but here it says, since the distinctive MSG is readily identified, these studies were thought not to be properly blinded. Yeah. Now, to be blinded is a really important quality of these studies because, the, as you said, the nocebo effect is, is real. And it's real. So if you're a participant in one of these studies and you know you're being injected with MSG, that is going to affect your symptoms, right? That's going to affect your experience of... Totally. So you, um, you've got to make sure you, you don't know what you're being injected by. So, and next week's episode, I've done a bit of pre-reading for it and I'll... I'll I'll bring up a... I won't talk about it now too much, but there's a little bit that we'll kind of get into um, 
about the problem with randomized control trials and how there are some interventions that you can't really control for. So a placebo type bias is a huge problem. And well, this could be one of those examples. Let, let right? me give you the, the final conclusion from this other one, which is um, reconsidering the effects of monosodium glutamate, a literature review. <clears throat> so this is the, I'll, I'll read this verbatim because it's actually pretty good. It's the, kind of like the, the nail in the, in the coffin kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, MSG has a widespread reputation for eliciting a variety of symptoms ranging from headache to dry mouth to flushing. Since the first report of so-called Chinese restaurant syndrome uh, 50 years ago. Oh, good name for a band. Chinese what? restaurant syndrome. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> it's not. It's not bad. <laughs> Clinical. I like how you've got your mind skewed onto uh, band always, names. Always. I've got a list, man. Well, what if it was like um, Chinese restaurant syndrome, and then the album title would be like by the notorious okay. MSG. In, oh, I like that. So no, but you'd be like some like food I'm like wonton. Wonton Super. destruction. <laughs> Wonton destruction. Yeah, actually, that's really good. I think yeah. we got it. Um, all right, in the bank. All right. So clinical trials have clinical trials have failed to identify a consistent relationship between MSG and the constellation of symptoms. Nice. Yeah. Flare in an abstract. That's good. Yeah. Um, that comprom that comprise the syndrome. Um, yeah. Although there have been reports of an MSG sensitive subset of the population, it's not been demonstrated in placebo controlled trials so it's, it's really kind of black and white to be honest if you um, use the word constellation like that in an astronomy paper it would probably just get confusing wouldn't it yeah that's right <laughs> the, the, the the constellation of problems we're finding in this situation but see I t the the interesting thing that's happening now in terms of culinary spheres is that people particularly um chefs celebrity chefs are now endorsing it and bringing it back into um popular culture and popular food culture particularly sure. well yeah why not um the chefs i don't know them but these are uh, um, prominent american chefs that uh -huh. are um bringing it back in hugh atchison and david chang do you know david chang yeah of course yeah. he's the momofuku guy he's yeah. like he's like one of the biggest chefs in the world right now but i'm not sure if you know about have you heard of umami yeah of course well i hadn't yeah so umami is a, is a flavor so umami is basically what M msg creates umami flavor and they call it like the sixth Fifth sense. Yeah. I'm so thinking, I, I remember at school you were learning about whether there was sweet, salty, salty, bitter, sour. Yeah. 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 And now there's umami yeah. as well. So which I, is remember kind hearing, of a, yeah. I remember hearing years ago about umami, a long time ago, um, maybe uni, maybe in high school. And that was also in my early MSG thing because someone said umami is MSG. And I was like, ah, oh, well, it can't be bad for you if that's like, it's one of the core buds, five. Yeah tastes is msg like if we have and this before i knew that we were made of it yeah <laughs> but i was like if we have a sensor that's like primed to receive it and just that well how can that be bad for you mm. so that was my own little sort of you know but that's right and, and so these, these chefs are now bringing it in with this additional kind yeah. of hey this is this is a flavor that you, you're not experiencing if you're excluding msg from your yeah diet. so like um it's a broth it's part of the, like the miso meat brothy kind of thing miso they say is, is is a umami flavor that's sort of the the purest dish that we can think of that it's got that that soy paste mm. fermented soybean mm. creates umami yeah, and, and interestingly enough, it, it, the, there are these uses. My now. brother, the Japanese chef, is uh, <laughs> has <laughs> definitely sort of fed me some of that, um, so to speak. Yeah, and, and it's also found another use in terms of diets for elderly people as well. 
because as you get older, you actually lose a lot of your senses of taste. Yeah. But this is still a very strong taste that you can maintain once those sort of sweet and salty kind mm-hmm. of tastes. And also, it, it enhances the sweet and the saltiness. Mm. So, you get more of those for less input, right? Mm. We should talk, probably talk about our sponsor at this stage, uh, Kickerman MSG. <laughs> <laughs> Powdered MSG. Add it to every meal. Everything you have to make, to make it taste better. Mm. And it will not give you headaches or flushing no. or whatever other stupid fake symptoms you think you get from it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is an example of, I think, it's, like we said, both mass hysteria um, and the nocebo effect. And a couple of years ago, there's now, this is just coming to me right now. So I forget the details. I probably shouldn't even be talking about it <laughs> without <laughs> having all the facts. But I do remember hearing about a Coca-Cola uh, crisis in, I think it was in Belgium. Right. And so it was the same kind of a thing. One person was drinking a Coke and got sick. And then they, all these other kids got sick and they, but they, they linked it to the Coke early on. I think that one person said, oh, I got it. I was drinking a Coke and then I felt sick. And then everyone else who was drinking Coke started feeling sick and like half the school went home and Coke had like recalled the entire, that entire batch I think and I popped was, it up now. This is yeah. quite, this is cool. And there was it was like what what year was it? Nineteen ninety nine. June 13, 1999. Was it was yep. that that or still earlier? Yeah, yeah. So re- yeah. recalled over fifteen million containers of the soft drink. Yeah. There was it was a they were afraid it was a contaminated batch. Yeah. But now no one ever had a diagnosable problem. There was no um none of the bottles were tested, found anything in them. Coke had to just give it a big mea culpa on it and lost all that money. And it was probably a similar example of just mass hysteria where there was this huge power suggestion and all these kids and their parents were like, yep, you ate that Coke, you're probably sick and going to die. And they all got better within like a couple hours and it was not a big deal at all. But um, it's, just, it's just incredible the power of suggestion on yeah. the human mind and body. Mm. It's, like, it's like with the, an RS, the RSI might be another subject well, matter for an episode. It's but, been the elephant in the room the entire time, hasn't it? Yeah. Right? Which is, for those who, people out there who don't know... Um, RSI, repetitive strain injury. injury. Most people have heard about that and most people probably think it's a real thing because you know you've heard it talked about as a thing or you've known someone that has it or you, you've you heard it in passing and you've assumed that whenever you've done something too much, you've got some degree of repetitive strain injury. Um, well, I'll tell you right now that as far as we know, it does not exist. Hmm. Um, and speaking from the perspective of an orthopedic surgeon, where what I do all day is cut people open, including their arms and wrists. Um, and we deal with all kinds of muscle, tendon, nerve, bone injuries from all kinds of causes. Um, there is no reason why simple, small, repetitive actions should cause you any problems. And all the evidence we have shows that it, it, it just doesn't. There's just nothing there. Mm. But it is probably a form of a psychosomatic illness. Um, well, I, su- I suffered from something very similar and you to that, had it, which yeah. I, I eventually called bullshit on myself yeah. on. And that but w- it, it appeared to be like, as soon as I would touch a keyboard or a mouse, yeah. My, my, yeah, my forearms would flare up. Like, like, this is not in my head. You could actually see my forearms and people would, would hold them and be like, holy shit, what, what's up with your forearms? Yeah. But they were like hugely spongy and, 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 and massive. But, and like we talked about a minute ago, what's flushing? A swollen arm is the same thing as flushing. Yeah, so for whatever reason, my brain is sending... To give an example, and this is getting quite crass, to give an example of what functionally flushing can do... i got a feeling I know where this goes. (laughs) An an erection Mm. is just a really flushed penis, right? Right. It's uh, it's a 
very vasodilated mm-hmm. arteries in mm-hmm. your penis. Um, and that engorgement is what causes the erection. So you can have a stiff, swollen member. Um, so your forearms can have the same thing, right? If you have the right emotional or um, psychological sort of um, event, it can initiate that kind of a swelling anywhere, really. Mm. Um, so it's not a surprise that can happen or that can happen from the mind. Um, but yeah, interestingly enough, just to, to, to yeah. complete my little um, anecdote, like for me, this is just what happened to me with the whole thing. It was it was some kind of emotional. I was going through some emotional trauma, and it was to do with that and me being at my desk and for whatever reason, my I didn't want to be there and I couldn't potentially admit that to myself. So my body started sending me signals that it didn't want to want to be there and would inflame my arm. So I couldn't literally touch the keyboard. And I would tell you, it was incredibly painful. Um, but it was some. It was definitely some emotional response as opposed to anything to do with the well, it, that's what it seems to be well yeah i mean i'm, I'm saying definitely as yeah. if I, I now know exactly the cause but and we know it, that it seems silly for it for me to be able to type as much as i want until oh totally until yeah. it just for some reason it just happened then and outside of just your personal case that's what we had for in the sort of the history of the disease right which is that people have been typing for a very long time or people have been doing small repetitive manual tasks for thousands of years, like in the history of our cultures. Mm. Um, but it wasn't until I think, again, also around the 1960s that we started getting these, or maybe the 50s, we started getting these typing pools where you'd have these, um, I think primarily women in these big rooms and they they just were typing all day long, right? Um, and it kind of came out of that culture where people started doing this as a job and they're typing. Now, people have been typing all day before this, but for some reason, this situation bred a couple people complained of, the symptoms we now associate with RSI mm. and it got some publication and then everyone started, and then everyone started doing it and it actually moved as like from country to country as the stuff spread. Wow. Yeah. And so the, the outbreaks of, of RSI are totally related to sort of it's like pandemic kind of it was, psychosomatic no, it pandemic completely. Well, in a way that's kind of what we, what we see with a lot of the wellness blogs, right? Like all of a sudden it'll be like avoid gluten and you can, you, I would love to see a map that lights up where the, people's avoidance of gluten yeah sort of like travels from wherever it started in a, probably in california or something and then traced totally. around the world to the it's a meme right yeah. in the truest um we're yet to do gluten so in, in the, in the, in the truest, a, a, we should a, we'll do gluten but yeah. it's a meme in the truest like dawkins sense of the of the word right which yeah. is like it behaves like a gene in how it moves right and it's sort of got a survival of the fittest idea it's a toxic cancerous idea that has incredible powers to survive um, sort of amongst the populace, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the right ideas, just like the right mutation in a cell um, or in a gene, can, uh, with, can allow the propagate like survive. the exception proving the rule. Exactly. <laughs> People are yeah, ready once, to go. That's what, I think Not that's why I hate that expression to, uh, so much, is that it just, <laughs> it gives you carte blanche to think whatever you want to think. Because yeah. you can just... Well, you, gluten you, doesn't affect me. Ah, but uh, you're the exception that proves the rule. Proves right? the rule, yeah. yeah. Or no, or there's no evidence that gluten does anything bad for anyone. Yeah, but I feel sick. The exception proves the rule. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, now, I think another, I don't know how much time we have left, but when we were talking about MSG last week, we were kind of doing a bit of like pre-chat. And I think we were talking about how we probably didn't have too much to talk about because <laughs> for you thought the nail in the coffin was that paper. For me, the nail in the coffin was just knowing that 
it's made of glued mate and so are we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. Like the word itself is the nail in the coffin. But what's interesting is the idea of nocebo. And for some reason, like after we recorded last week, I told you about this very briefly, but I don't know what made me think about it. I was reading about absinthe. I don't, oh, because on Saturday night, I went out for a drink with a friend of mine and I had a, um, a pastis. Oh yeah, yeah, I got a Pernod, yeah, yeah. which is like you know you'd be familiar with the. Oh, I'm I'm a, I'm a big uh, pastis man. Are you? No, I'm not. No, no. <laughs> but you, I'm aware of it. I, yeah, it's, so it's like my, you're, you're Greek, yeah. so you guys have ouzo. One of those other the, things I don't, I don't drink. Yeah. Yeah, it's all the same. It's all sort of the same drink, right? It's yeah. just like. Is it aniseed? Aniseed. Yeah. yeah, aniseed and fennel, both of these slightly licorice. Yeah. Do you mean fennel? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that at all. No, okay, right. Um, and yeah, so. I had one and I was read about the history of it and some bits I knew, some bits I didn't. And this sounds really boring and extraneous, but I'll get to the point quickly. Um, basically they started as, um, absinthe was like the original licorice type mm. aniseed drink. And a, an ingredient of that was wormwood, which is just some plant. Um, but that's always been a part of what makes that drink that drink. Right. Um, it started to get a bit of a reputation around, I guess, with the, during the French's, the Belle Epoque, which is, you know, sort of around the turn of the century. Um, you had a lot of the, the arts scene happening in France or around Europe and France in particular. Um, and we have a lot of the sort of the imagery and the history of absinthe coming out of France in that time. Mm. Even though it had been around for ages. And it got associated with sort of that, um, that the nightlife there and the creativity uh, and sort of, it was treated, it was described more as a drug than as a liquor. Right. And, you know, people talk about uh, the green fairy and sort of being taken away by the green fairy and the effects it has on you. It almost described like hallucinogenic type properties of the drink. Like LS- but it's still LS- just alcohol, right? It's, it's alcohol just, with... It's alcohol, but with herbs. So herbs. it's got some other herbs in it. So people claim that the wormwood, probably, um, was the cause of that. And that it was, yeah, it was an alcohol, but there's a different kind of... You have your regular drunks and you had your absinthe drunks. Right. And they were more dangerous. They were more vile. They were a worse kind of alcoholic mm. uh, because they were essentially a drug addict as well. And there's tons of, you know, incredible paintings from the time of especially um, Toulouse-Lautrec. And the whole Moulin Rouge scene was very much centered around absinthe. And you see these really destitute, down and out, just cripplingly depressed people strung out after not an absinthe. And they're treated again like more like drug addicts. Um, to the point where I think it's in around 1914 or so, I think, um, it was outlawed throughout most of Europe because presumably it's drug-like qualities. Again, this is, this is a, yeah. me- a meme cutting through Yeah, and we have tons of descriptions countries. from you know, people like Oscar Wilde, very eloquent people, English people. Mm. For, for, so there's no, nothing being lost in translation who would describe um, their experience of, the, of, of, a, of an absinthe trip. Right. Um, you know, with, with shimmering feelings and sensory, altered sensory perception, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, to the point where it seemed pretty pretty ironclad. Now, Absinthe made a comeback um, without Wormwood. Basically, they just made, that's where pastis came from. Mm. They're like, okay, we'll get rid of that part of it. And so Pernod was actually like one of the original Absinthe producers. And then 
Pernod dropped the Wormwood and just made the Pernod as we know, which is pastis now. It has been for the last hundred years. This is the equivalent being Chinese restaurants just creating the Chinese food without the MSG, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. So they, 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 they dropped the Wormwood yeah. and they kept on going with their business and everything was fine. And it's it kind of, it's a, it's a cornerstone of Mediterranean life, right? Because, yeah. you know, the Greeks have ouzo and I think the Turks have something similar as well. There's all these kind of anacidi type liqueurs, which are all... It starts with R. Yeah, they all, they all come from... Rocky. Rocky? Maybe. Oh, I think I got it. I've had it. They all taste pretty bloody similar. Um, anyway, all that to say that um, in the last dozen or so years, it's made a comeback and people have lobbied for Europe, for most of these European countries to actually legalize it mm. because to the best of what we can tell, there's nothing wrong with Warburton. And it has, if not no such subtle hallucinogenic properties that the volume required... Well, to get enough in you, you would die first from alcohol alcoholism. poisoning. Yeah, yeah. So there's just no reason why it should actually. We, we don't know why people would have that. And if you think that maybe we've lost the original recipe or there's something else in there, yeah. we actually have because these companies are still like Pernod still around. We have all the recipes and people still have bottles. I mean, people have hundreds of year old wine bottles. There are tons of 100-year-old bottles of absinthe that are still floating around. Not in my cabinet, buddy. <laughs> no, not in your cabinet. You drink it too quick. Yeah. Uh, but people have done like have done like mass spectrometry on it, and they've done chemical analyses, and they've gone through nothing. to see. And it's nothing. Nothing. It's no. just booze. It's just booze. Well, let me, um, let me... And so this is another example of that nocebo where, hmm. for some reason, people, it developed some mystique around this time. Prior to that, I don't think it had a big reputation for it. But around the turn of the century, it got this big reputation for it. And it was sort of self-propagating. And people really re-bought into it wholesale. And it just became a thing. And people now people were embracing those negative qualities of the uh, of the drug. But they created them out of almost out of thin air, mm. really. And to the point where they actually got it banned. Um, and we've had sort of this, you know, this prejudice against the drug for the entire time. So we have like this episode of this pre-MSG, MSG story, um, which is what, I guess, 40 or 50 years before. We have a habit of doing this. Yeah. Of, uh, of letting well, blank, go, blanket banning yeah, of, things. Of, of because letting someone, the nocebo effect yeah. kind of run rampant with our imaginations. Yeah. And the interesting one too was the... So the next, I guess, gluten might be one of those. I've heard... I'm looking forward to doing the gluten one because I'll say it right now. I, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of all the gluten stuff, but I have heard people say... Once, once you get off gluten, you're kind of... They feel great. And that, yeah, people, there are celiacs. So we know there's a, there's a oh, yeah, organic problem. Yeah. But, but see, that might, have, that might be the stem. Well, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. But that might be the stem from which everyone else's subtle, more subtle forms Well, of, that's... So you look at it two ways, right? And we'll get into this more, I guess, next or in a few weeks. But is it... Is, is, is the association the fact that, um, yeah, we appreciate there is, if in fact, an organic sensitivity to gluten people can't handle some people can't handle it therefore can some people have a milder version of that you could stretch your imagination and say yeah i guess it's possible that a regular person may have a problem with it maybe it's not that good for us hmm. or is it purely suggestion that one population who can't have it poisons a population that have absolutely no problem well, well we'll probably do that at some later date but what's our yeah. next episode so next week what are we going to be doing uh, we're going to J to the B. We're going to... Uh, acupuncture. acupuncture. Yeah. The big Good. one. The, the big the A. a. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you've got any suggestions, feel free to uh, write to us on our Facebook group, which is Jeremy's Iron. Also, Twitter, at Jeremy's Iron Pod. 
That's right. Acupuncture actually came from one of our listeners, Michael in Oakland. Uh-huh. Yeah. Asked us to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We'll read his letter out next week. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Um, so hopefully and also we, we had, some, that we had some feedback from a Noni as well. Oh, no, yeah. Noni in South Sudan. No shit. No shit. Working in MSF right now. A native of South Sudan. No, no. MSF. Um, but she, when we're talking about microwaves, uh-huh. the conventional oven is conventional with respect to con, uh, convection ovens as opposed to what we said, which was conventional with respect to microwave ovens, apparently. Okay. So you told me that. I haven't looked into that yet, but... I'm pretty sure that a convection oven is just a regular oven with it that you turn the convection on in. So I think convection is a feature of a conventional oven. <laughs> I don't think she's right, but I'm, I'm open to anyone writing in. You might have to write us another comment. Yeah. Noni, I think and clarify. Can we communicate with Noni through this podcast? I'd like to see that. Well, yeah. I'm not going to tell her that we've mentioned her, so hopefully she'll... Hopefully she's listening yeah. because I took that face value last week, but thinking about it more right now, I just don't feel like she's right. But we'll leave it on that. Okay. Next week, guys. See ya. Bye.